The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Gayad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Anthony Zhang, co-founder of VinoVest. Uh, this is the second time, Anthony, you and I are doing this. First time, obviously, I'm going to be recording this for uh, YouTube here. I very much enjoyed our prior conversation. I know, obviously, uh, a little bit about you. But for those who don't know about your background, talk about who you are, what you've done, and how you get involved in starting a company that invests in wine. Yeah. So, hey, everybody. I'm Anthony. Um, as Michael mentioned, I am one of the co-founders and CEO of VinoVest. And what we do is we help people diversify their assets into uh, real-world investable assets like wine and whiskey. And how I got into investing in wine is kind of a funny story. So before this company, I had founded a food delivery app. It was called Envoy Now. And it was very similar to like your Postmates or your DoorDashes of the world, except that our supply side was only students. This meant that they had the dining card access, they had the dining points and credits, and also the ID card access to be able to get into the buildings that a regular Postmates driver couldn't. And what that did was it led to, on average, eight minutes faster deliveries than a Postmates driver or an Uber Eats driver. And you know, for all of us who are lazy and want to order food a ton, you know that really speed matters, right? I was fortunate enough to be able to receive an investment from Peter Thiel that gave me the freedom to drop out of college and run that company full time and was able to sell that company a few years ago. And that was back in 2016, got hooked on crypto right after that. And that was really my, my sort of foray into alternative assets and investing. And um, if you're in crypto long enough, you meet some interesting people. You know, I was interested in investing in anything, right? If you're crazy enough to invest in Bitcoin and Ethereum back in 2016, you're, you're investing in diamonds, watches, and uh, pretty soon enough for me, it was collecting and investing in fine wine and whiskey. And to me, it just really made sense because what drives this market is supply and demand, right? Wine ages and it gets better as it ages. But as it gets older, more and more people drink it. And every single bottle consumed is less supply in the market, which leads to more demand and higher prices. So I was like, great, let's, let's start investing in wine. It was much easier said than done. And I realized why you have to be pretty rich to collect wine, right? If you think of a wine collector day, you probably think of some really, really wealthy old man. And that's not me. Um, realized that I wanted to create an easier way, take care of the problems from storage to authentication to you know, price tracking and, and access. And uh, VinoVest was born 
Uh, we use a machine learning powered algorithm that can help anybody, regardless of if you know anything about wine or not, to be able to select wines that we think will appreciate in value. We'll store them for you, we'll sell them for you, and actively manage your portfolio. And we also have an open market. So if you're the type of person who wants to make your own trades and bets and research, we have a 24-7 trading platform as well. All right. So usually entrepreneurs start businesses to solve their own problem, right? I think it's sort of typically what I often hear from other entrepreneurs. You had the food delivery app, then you got into crypto, then you started wine. I find it hard to imagine that there was a problem around wine other than exactly that point you mentioned, which is that it's a market that only very wealthy people have historically had access to. Talk about your process of self-education, because I'm going to assume you weren't necessarily sort of a, a wine connoisseur exactly prior to starting VinoVest. Definitely not. I, like many, enjoy a glass of wine, but I was the type of person who was like, I'll drink whatever in front of me and I'll, I'll think it tastes pretty good. So when, when it came to me educating myself about the world of fine wine and wine investment, I, like any consumer, was just on Google. And there's a few wine investment shops out there. Um, and what I realized that it's typically someone who's already very wealthy and kind of doing this out of, as like a passion project, right? Um, and there was just a pretty startling lack of analytical rigor, especially, you know, for me coming from like a tech and crypto background, almost all the decisions I was making in crypto were algorithmically or, you know, quantitatively driven. And I was like, why is there no sort of quantitative analysis for this asset class, right? It has charged just like any other asset. Why can't we do that? Um, and through that, I got to learn more about which wine regions were worth investing in, you know, right? Which bottles we're investing in and, and where are the opportunities in the market and what factors outside of supply and demand impact the market, right? Things like critic scores are your, are your sort of equivalent of like an analyst issuing a rating. You know, there's no earnings reports in wine bottles, but there certainly are vintage reports. And there certainly is data based on you know, future supply and consumption demand that we're getting from consumer reports that also affect wine prices. So it was just really interesting to start building in parallels that I saw in traditional equities and crypto and start to just apply those same principles into the world of wine. Okay, so you had mentioned uh, diversification at the start and diversification is a, a funny term in a year like this because unless you had commodities, Anything that you thought would help you diversify against losses has all kind of acted in the same way. Talk about the role for at least historically very wealthy individuals, uh, the role of wine in a portfolio as an investment. How does that, from what you've seen, correlate to sort of the big bucket investments like equities, like bonds? Yeah, so for, for wealthy individuals, you know, high net worths and family offices, they traditionally have about a 5 or 10% allocation to, to hard assets, right? Historically, this would have been gold, right? But to your point, gold hasn't really acted in the way as, a, as an inflation or a recession hedge like, like really it's supposed to. And you know, people thought Bitcoin would have done the same thing for us, but fortunately, that is pretty correlated to the markets as well. And what wine does is because it really is based on supply and demand and probably for the detriment of society, when stocks go down, people drink. When stocks go up, people drink, right? There's always a reason for us to drink. And that is that is what keeps the price floor really, really stable for fine wine. Um, and that is, that is what wealthy individuals, family offices, and money managers use wine for in a portfolio. It's that sort of, you know, less liquid, very solid, stable, uncorrelated asset that's going to give you returns, whether it's a down year or an up year in the markets. 
on that point about people drinking in recessions and in bear markets, that makes sense, obviously. But is there any sort of shifting in price point? I mean, I understand this is more for the, the wines are kind of more for those that are wealthier that probably don't have to worry too much about losing you know their net worth in a, in a meaningful way that affects their lifestyle. But it, does there tend to be sort of a downshift in recessions around the types of wines that get more attention because they're cheaper or they're more of a value? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've analyzed this consumption data um, during COVID as well as during 08, 09. And interestingly enough, you know, let's look at three different categories. So like, I'll say like bulk wine, which is stuff that's like $15 and below. Mid-tier wine, which is like, you know, 30 to $70. And I'd say anything above $70 is like more premium wine. Um, a lot of the bulk wine, so $15 and below, those drinkers actually shifted to hard liquor. Maybe they needed something a little bit stronger at the end of the day. That's sort of mid-tier. So like the, you know, the stuff that like a bulk wine drinker might splurge on, that almost disappeared. But what we saw was that more and more people were turning to that premium category. I mean, that is, you know, the, the category that we invest in, which is fine wine, one that has, you know, a lot, a lot of sort of brand value, limited supply, and has that sort of, had that sort of long uh, lifespan that can lead it to age and get better over time, regardless of where you are in an economic cycle. So I'm not a, uh, a huge wine person myself, and I tend to myself be, you know, a little skeptical of price points on wine and Maybe it's just my my uh, palate, but I usually can't tell that much of a difference between, you know, let's call it a quote-unquote cheap bottle of wine versus a more expensive bottle of wine. What are your thoughts on sort of how much of this marketplace is driven by what you alluded to, which is brand and kind of the, the stories around particular wines versus, you know, kind of the perception, right? Versus the reality of, at the end of the day, it's still a drink. Yeah, I think it's really dominated by the former, right? It's It's people's like, perception of like, what's the story behind the bottle, right? Is it special? Right? Is it? Is it something that is like super, super rare, right? It's, it's a flex, right? Like, that's honestly what drives most of alcohol, right? At the end of the day, it's grape juice, it'll get the job done if you're looking to get drunk. But um, why do why do people value a $50,000 bottle of wine, right over a $5,000 bottle of wine? The reason of that huge price gap is really not the ingredients or the care or the winemaking. Of course, there's differences in that, but that doesn't lead to a 10,000% increase in price. It's, it's really about who you're sharing it with, who you want to flex on, and, and kind of that perceived scarcity and, and what that says about you as a person when you drink that or share that with friends. That's, that's I think, no different than sort of the argument for artwork as a form of investing, right? You, you say flex, there's kind of a, a bragging rights aspect to having something that is one of a kind, whether it's drinkable or just visible, and uh, becomes a way to basically show that you have something nobody else really can possibly access. You mentioned value there. <laughs> it's it's there's no such thing as price to earnings when it comes to to wine, and value is always in the eyes of the beholder, right? When he, when you don't have any sort of clear fundamental basis and. Again, that applies to artwork and I'd argue watches and and that kind of type of investment. How do you think about what's a quote unquote undervalued versus overvalued type of type of bottle? Yeah, I think to to take your price to earnings ratio analogy, we look at something internally at the NLS called price per point. So critic scores are the points that we we look at and say if we look at like the last ten years of a winery and if we look at the average prices divided by the average points given by the major critics, 
we're able to find relative value, right? So if like a 100-point wine is $10,000, but a 97-point wine is $5,000, right? There's a clear gap in that in that value where like, hey, like still a great wine, it's still 97 points, but it has a 50% discount because, you know, human nature just values the perfect score, right? It's, it's uh, very hard to find. So then we'll be like, all right, well, even though we're getting a huge discount on this wine, um, in 10 years, will it matter, right? There's still, it's still going to be such a rare wine that's scored very highly that we're going to scoop this up at a great entry price and be able to sell it off. All right, so where do I invest in wine when I want to invest, right? It's not just any $100 bottle is going to get you returns, right? There's different regions and different places that are sort of your major markets. And, you know, obviously, California, especially Napa is one of our major markets. So is France, right? And especially regions like Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne that um, have had wines that have been around for hundreds of years, right? Those are your equivalent of like your, your fan companies or blue chip companies where you can look at decades of price history data on all of their annual releases, see that, that the, the region, as well as those wineries, have been increasing in price every single year. And I think for beginners who want to be able to start with you know, those sort of wines that have the highest secondary market liquidity, that have the lowest volatility, you got to start with those, those, um, you know, those blue chip regions and then other states, right? Or like states that are, or regions that are making moves, right? That can be our equivalent of like a high growth region or an emerging market, literally, right? There's awesome wine coming out of, you know, Central America. There's awesome wine coming out of, you know, parts in the United States and Europe that previously were just not well-known wine regions. And those are ones that we're definitely keeping an eye on because one of those, they could be the future Napa someday in the, in the next few decades. I want those that are in the space. And again, I'm, you know, I'm hosting this. I'm not getting paid by Anthony or by Vinovest. So this is more of just a, a conversation that's interesting, especially in an environment where everyone is un, is unfortunately in the same boat, which is where the hell do you invest in a, in a, in a period like this? that's so unusual. Talk, just talk about some of the logistics and mechanics of what goes into the back end. So somebody goes to Vinovest, what are they doing on the front end? And then what are you doing on the back end to complete that transaction? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Great question. So on the front end, we just learn more about you and what you're looking to get out of your wine investment, right? Are you are you looking for a super long-term hold, 10 plus years? Are you looking for something shorter term, you know, three to five years? How much do you want to put in today versus in the future? By the way, I'm going to assume there's no such thing as day trading wine <laughs> for whatever it's worth. People, people are doing it. People are doing it because... Even though the the world of wine news is not as exciting as as crypto or stocks, but um, there's still things that lead to like intraday price pops. So the other day, for example, I think it was like Jay Z or Beyonce. They like posted a bottle on their Instagram stories, right? And it was a bottle of like Sassicaia, which is this famous Italian wine. And midday, we're like, wait, why is the 2015 Sassicaia up 15 percent? And we didn't know why. We're like, there's no new critic score result. There's no not. But then we just saw like, oh wait, it's 
Beyonce posting a photo of it that everyone's trying to buy it right now, right? So small things like that can lead lead to fun fun day trading. Um, but I would agree with you, Michael, that for the long part, or for the most part, this is a pretty long term investment, right? It just takes time for wine to age and and store it and get better. Okay, so they they go in, they, they determine their time horizon, you know, as far as how long they are they're willing to keep that capital locked up. What happens next? What is it that that you guys are actually doing on the back end? So we have direct relationships with all these top wineries. We're the ones that actually go out and use our machine learning powered algorithm that creates a portfolio recommendation based on your inputs. We then go buy those wines, we store them, and then we also have checkpoints for authentication and insurance. So we've got these world-class facilities all around the world. Like for example, when they're one in Europe, the British royal family stores their wine in the same place that we do. And we just keep it safe, perfect conditions, and give you live price tracking movements for whenever you want to or need to exit or rebalance or add more to your positions. How expensive is that insurance? I mean, I got to assume that's a niche that not too many insurance providers would even consider, but maybe I'm wrong on that. Yeah, it, it is pretty niche because like wine value and, and pricing, right? Like it's not something that you can really find like a, a regular insurance company to do for you. And I had this problem myself when I was trying to invest in wine. I had my wine fridge and I was like, hey, there's, you know, there's like $50,000 worth of wine in this fridge. Can you add that to my home value? And they're like, I have no idea what that even means, right? So you do need something, someone a little bit more specialized or else it'll be extremely expensive. And that's why we work with these large-scale facilities that have these specialized partners. And since we're storing so much wine with them at this point, we're able to reduce the cost to our consumers that it's pretty feasible. Okay, so you mentioned um, machine learning, right? Which is fancy terminology for regression analysis. But I think is kind of the, the reality around largely what at the core of machine learning is. That assumes, of course, that you have not only accurate data, but that the data is frequent enough to allow for updating of the machine learning process, right, from an input perspective. Talk about the frequency with which data is input into your algorithms from a machine learning perspective, because I'm going to assume, maybe I'm wrong, that just like a home, you don't really know what the price is day to day. The same probably applies to to anything that's a liquid like wine. Yeah, we certainly suffer from a problem in that it's not a 24-7, you know, globally traded market like crypto, right? That is, I think, you know, one very extreme end. I think the other extreme end is like something like a house, right? Um, wine is, especially the wine that we're dealing with, is traded multiple times a day. And we are able to kind of make hourly adjustments to to our strategy and our, and our data inputs within that. And what about the the sources of that that data, right? So, it's not like they're necessarily exchanges, right, where you can kind of aggregate and then find sort of the average true price, right, aside from the timing mismatches. But talk about sort of the, the, the sources of, of that of that information. Yeah, so there are actually quite a few exchanges for wine. Okay, okay. And uh, they're, very, they're very regionally focused, right? So just coming from the crypto world, I always use this analogy that like in the early days of Bitcoin, like there were huge spreads across these different exchanges, especially regionally, right? Like, price of Bitcoin on a Korean exchange could be like 5% more than the United States. It's much more egregious in the wine world. Uh, you know, an Asian exchange versus a US exchange versus a European exchange could have huge, huge spreads. And we just pull all the bids, offers, historical pricing data from all of these and aggregate it because it is a 24-7 market, right? Like people drink wine all around the world. And even though there's no like 
official sort of stock exchange for wine today, you know, that's that's how we're able to kind of grab it by proxy and aggregate these order books to be able to inform our pricing. Yeah, I think that's actually a pretty big business in and of itself, meaning the data that you got on the back end aggregated. I mean, that's probably a whole nother business if you if you ever decided to license that out or make that very openly visible. Totally. And that's what we want to do is make it openly visible because most people don't know if they're getting ripped off for wine or not, right? Because they only see what's on the menu, right? Or they only see what's in their local store and they don't see what's in a different country or state or continent. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really uh, a problem when people are not knowing what's the transparent price. So that's absolutely a problem that we're working on solving at Unovest. In terms of um, terminology from a stock investor's perspective, idiosyncratic risk, risk that's specific to, to a particular company, it doesn't sound like the way it's been being described that there's that much idiosyncratic risk if it's, let's say, based on the history, the narrative, the story around a particular bottle, because that's not really going to change. That's in history, right? That's, that kind of is what it is. Is there some some sort of, I don't know, wine-specific risk that investors should be aware about? Or is it one of those things where it's more about the entire group and sort of these these vintage type of bottles? Talk, talk through that a little bit. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I'm trying to rack my brain right now as I'm talking. I think the two main things that come to mind that we kind of chat about was is storage risk, right? Like no matter how great the history of the wine, no matter how great of an entry price you got, if you're if you're gonna like cook it in a car, that's that makes the value zero. And the second thing is buying fraudulent wines, right? Like a lot of luxury girls in the world, counterfeiting is everywhere. Um, so if if you happen upon a wine where you don't really know its source or it's a fake wine, that's also another risk that's specific to the wine industry, but not necessarily to like a particular winery per se. Ah, okay. So this is interesting because the the because you have the same dynamic with artwork too, right? Something that looks like it's real but could be complete fraud. And you know, we know that there are whole industries dedicated around trying to determine if some kind of artwork is fraudulent. I saw some. Netflix uh, documentary not too long ago about, I forget the name of it, but it was about some some uh, artwork, some gallery, and somebody would keep on coming in and sell art to the gallery, and it turns out that this person that was supposed to know if it was real or not was was had with it, right? That it wasn't uh, real at all. So let's talk about that, that fraudulent aspect of it, because it seems to me that that would be very difficult to identify unless you actually open the bottle and tasted it, and even if you tasted it, I don't know how much that would tell you about whether it's authentic or not. Yeah, it, you really can't end up opening the bottle because even then, it's probably the first time you've tasted it, right, as as a wine expert, and you can't really compare it to that many other things that's exactly that bottle. And that's why we just can't take any chances with this, right? Like, even though we're getting a great deal from maybe a very world-renowned wine collector, if it's in his home, we're not going to buy it, right? We just can't take those risks that turn a very safe asset class into a a pretty risky asset class because that thing is worth zero dollars, right? It's not a it's not a thirty percent discount or a fifty percent discount. If the wine is fake, it's worth nothing. Let's talk about correlation within the asset class for a second here, because there's the old expression that when it comes to the stock market, a rising tide lifts all boats. This is going to sound really corny, but does a rising tide of alcohol, I guess, lift all bottles? Right. In other words, let's say the percentages across different wines within a basket of wines. Let's call it they all kind of roughly move in the same way like a school of fish? Or are there these occasional outliers that drive up you know, the value of, as, of the asset class overall? Yeah, that's a great question. I think if we're looking at it from a regional level, right? Like say if 
if like one champagne house is getting really hot, odds are that that champagne house is sold out, right? And people who want it are probably going to look for the next best thing, which is other champagne, right? So we'll see a regional sort of correlation within uh, a small region like that. But just because champagne is hot doesn't mean Napa's hot. So uh, if you look at it from a region by region base, the correlation is really not there. Um, but if you look at it within a region, it's certainly there. Let, let me let me take this a little bit to um, a term that we seemingly hear nonstop every day, which is supply chain disruptions. And I know that you know you're talking a little more about the, kind of the vintage wines and the things which are really rare have stories. So this is probably more along the sort of newer supply or availability of wine. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts, Anthony, on on uh, what's going on with supply chain issues, if there are really any, when it comes to uh, the wine space overall. Yeah, thank you. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Global shipping has definitely made things a lot tougher, especially for those hard costs that uh, winemakers depend on, right? So the cost of glass to make a bottle is up around 30, 40% year over year. Obviously, cost of labor and and gas for machinery and tractors and things like that is up as well, as well as uh, the cost of, of, of cork. So all of those things need to be built into the bottom line for a new winery. So you'll see new wine prices go up. Um, and that's also led to people buying older wine, right? Because all that wine is already out in the open. They're not really going to suffer from, you know, the newer supply chain issues, but they're seeing increased demand because people don't want to, you know, pay so much for a wine that's brand new. They see that relative value in a wine that maybe is like five years old, but hasn't really reached its appreciation peak and people are just going to snag it and drink that instead. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and another consideration for you know, investors in general, and this year's a good reminder of that, is uh, you always have to size your investment based on your risk tolerance. And oftentimes, people only realize they should have done that after they've suffered a pretty big drawdown in what they're investing in, the drop from, from peak to trough. In all the data that you've seen and all of your experience, Anthony, what if, what's sort of the range of, of drawdown outcomes, right, in any particular cycle? What's the worst that the average has done, peak to trough? What's the, what's the worst any individual wine that wasn't a fraudulent situation has done? Talk about how severe declines and risks historically have been for the space. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to rack my brain and I'm looking at the last few recessions. Average drawdown in 2020, you know, back in February, March was around 0.4%. Average drawdown in 2008, 2009 was, was more severe. That was around 11%. Um, and then the average drawdown during the dot-com crash during that sort of like 2001, 2002 period uh, was around 11% again. So that's how the broader fine wine market looks. Of course, I think there are outliers that could probably see more, you know, more severe peak to trough falls, you know, maybe around 20, 30%, but it's, it's rare, right? Some Someone would have to do something really, really wrong. Like, I don't know, that winemaker turns out to be a murderer or something like that to, for people to stop drinking their wine and 
uh, or selling it at a huge discount. And the thing is, like, if you're selling a ball for 40% less or 30% less than what you bought it for, most people are just going to take that loss and just drink it instead, instead of like getting a monetary loss. So that's, I think, another reason why the drawdowns in wine are not as volatile as, as what you're seeing in other markets. By, by the way, if it's a murderer, you definitely don't want to buy the red wine, just for whatever it's worth. That's a, I think that's a, that would be a bad, bad move to do. Yeah. How do how do demographics and population shifts impact the trajectory of of wine demand? Right, because I gotta assume, like everything else, there's always preferences by one generation or another over what's being consumed. You know, maybe taste shift for any number of reasons, diet shift. How much variability is there on on wine demand based on multi-generational type of cycles? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think in the past, like, you know, maybe five years, we've seen a big shift toward people caring about organic, natural, sustainably produced wine. And oftentimes, that wine tends to have like lower alcohol levels per bottle than uh, what we've seen maybe like five to 15 years ago, where like... Uh, so, so that's interesting, actually. So that's, uh, so, okay, so, so in other words... The ABV equivalent, right, is, is less historically. Now it's much more because people want to maybe get messed up faster. Yeah, so that's something I've, I've definitely seen as more of a generational shift, right? Like we always hear about people uh, leaning more toward like low alcohol options nowadays, especially that people care about their health and you know want to know where, where those grapes were grown and the name of the guy that picked it and stuff like that. Because of that, though, like if you're, you know, if you're drinking wine that's 12% versus 15%, you can drink more than twelve percent, right? So the the volume is is going up on a consumption standpoint, whereas the you know the the shift is becoming more popular for these like lower, more sustainably farmed type of type of wines. Since you use the term sustainable, uh, is that often when I do these spaces, I don't overly prep. It's just kind of me curious and asking a question. So sustainable wine, I've I've seen that obviously, but just like there's been a move towards ESG investing, has there been a similar sort of level of excitement around? organic wines, even though you can argue wines really are organic to begin with? Yeah, it's, it's certainly been a, a shift that we've seen. And um, I think also as a way to combat climate change, right? Because if you're farming sustainably, that you know average vine on, on the vineyard is going to be needing less external you know, fertilizer and, and things like that and be less dependent on perfect weather, right? It's, it's able to be more drought resistant. It's able to kind of do better toward more volatile and volatile weather. So it's it's both something that the winemakers are doing out of necessity and also something that consumers just care about more and more on their labels. You know, when when you are managing, I think, a large, large number of, of uh, clients who are very, very new to the space, um, this is definitely part of like that sort of second layer education that we give to give to clients, right? We first want to start like, hey, why should you invest in wine? Then it's why should you invest in these certain regions of wine? Why should you invest in these actual wineries within the regions? And then, you know, specific bottles and specific years, because there's definitely a lot to unpack and can be pretty overwhelming um, to, to start with if we kind of just dove down to the, the micro level to start with. What are some of the, um, the common traits among investors that go to you through VinoVest? Meaning, from a demographic perspective, more men than women tend to invest in stocks, right? This is just factual. I'm going to assume that may not be as big of a skew when it comes to investing in wine, but but talk about sort of the the sort of age brackets, the the, the gender aspect of who tends to come and and visit your site and then actually put some some capital at risk. 
Yeah, I think in terms of like the age demographics, it's looking like millennials and Gen X. So, you know, folks that I think have been in the workforce, you know, 10, 15, maybe, maybe even 20 years, and they've got their sort of initial investment portfolio down, right? They're contributing to their 401k and they've got their stock portfolio and maybe they're also invested in another alternative, right? Whether it be like real estate or crypto or anything like that. And wine is like one of their first or second things outside of stocks that they're investing in. You know, they realize that they want to be able to protect their wealth in in addition to growing it. And this seems like something that, you know, honestly is, is probably a little bit more interesting than than most other alternative options, something that maybe they could share with their friends, talk about with their friends, and especially now, like something that can be the investment that they are looking for when they're hedging against inflation or, or volatility in their current portfolio. You know what's interesting to me about this is that a lot of what you do is relying on technology and allowing for this aggregation of information and this machine learning like we talked about. And, you know, oftentimes most people would think that the more technology you have in an organization, the less labor you need to achieve whatever objectives you have. But there's conceivably a lot of uh, labor intense stuff that happens on the back end in terms of sourcing things, in terms of making sure that these these kind of uh, fragmented aspects of storage are, are handled the right way. Talk about some of the logistics outside of the technology side that, that you have to deal with with Minovest. Yeah, we certainly have an offline component, right? Because we're dealing with a real-world asset with real-world risks. Um, and I think especially when we're working with our partners in the wine industry, um, it's, it's, it's pretty traditional, right? Like we have our wine relations partners that are on the ground and in, in France, in Italy, actually meeting these winemakers, shaking their hands, like giving them that sort of live sort of FaceTime when... I think you know that's kind of the the way that many of them have been doing business because that's the way that their their parents and their grandparents have been doing business, right? So there's certainly a manual component, especially when they're sourcing and relationships. And then when it comes to the, the logistics, right, like actually transporting wine, storing wine, inspecting the wine, we're we're pretty lucky to have these very well established, huge uh, storage companies that we work with that have it down to a T, right? So for us. We're able to kind of plug into their expertise, and uh, it's it's not really something that we employ anybody to to like sit at the warehouse and receive things to. They just they just kind of contract with us. I'll share a personal story for those you know you can't see me, but I I am a I'm an Asian dude. I'm I'm pretty young. I'm 27. There is no way that any of these top wineries would would talk to me if I knocked on their door, and that's why our Winery relations folks are are very very French. They are you know born into wine families and just have that sort of you know that sort of like they're on the inside of the club sort of feel. And that's really what's led to our success on securing all these relationships. Right, like the the never judge a book by its cover thing is is unfortunately not in play here. Oh, but that, but that's interesting because because uh, and I think this is probably one of the challenges that any entrepreneur has, which is. How do you trust that the relationships are acting as fiduciaries for you in trying to source and find wine? Because yeah, you know, presumably these are you know as you said relationships that that are born into it. You know they're on the ground. Maybe there's a bottle that's like an incredible value that uh, they wouldn't necessarily tell Vinovest about, but they might do it, take it themselves. I'm oh. sure that's a risk, right? But I mean, how does yeah. that how does that factor into the operations? Yeah, I think like it really depends on trust, right? Like. The people that we hire are people that believe in our mission, right? Are people that want to work 
for Vino Gus to change how the way the world of wine is. And, you know, they, they realize that they're in a very privileged position today and they're using that to their advantage. And that's helping the sort of old guard, you know, be, be opening up to, to our ways, right? Because we're bringing a sort of new generation of wine collectors and investors into the space, whereas probably anyone who knows a wine collector can sort of speak to the average demographic, which is like you know, quite a bit older, already very wealthy. And, and those people are, you know, in, in say two, three decades going to be drinking less wine, right? And spending less on wine. But the main demographic that becomes the wine drinkers is, is our demographic, right? Today, there's no way I drop like $5,000 on a bottle of wine. But in 20 years, hopefully if all goes well, yeah, I'm definitely going to do that, right? Because that's kind of when uh, I'm at the age or time in my life where I want to be able to you know, have some expenditures like that and enjoy. Are you structured as a as an investment advisor, as a company? What what's the nature of the structure with how Vinovest is 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 put out there? Yeah, great question. So today our open platform that's available to everybody is structured really as just a wine marketplace. So because the wine that we're allowing you to buy is your wine. You get the full bottle. It's not a share that represents a bottle, right? It's not a security or a fraction of a fund. It means that you can actually enjoy your wine and get it shipped to you at the end of the day. Uh, because of that, we're not regulated by the SEC. Um, and we are looking at future offerings to more so institutionalized, right? So this would be more so for the accredited investor sort of family office RAA crowd where that's, you know, absolutely structured as, you know, as, um, you know, a fund. And, you know, we'd have the sort of required disclosures for for that different type of audience. But Today, we're very retail-focused. We want to be a place where people can not just invest, but collect and also drink. Um, and that makes it for you know much more flexible offering. And you're basically just getting a fee just like a, like an investment advisor otherwise would, right? So I assume some percentage of, of the value. Exactly. In terms of the asset turn management would not be the proper term, but in terms of the, the amount of dollars that have flowed in or flown out, I don't know how much you're willing to disclose, but I'm curious... How many dollars have you seen that have, have gone through Vinovest into actually investing in, in the various wines of the platform? Oh, um, I would say in the last sort of, you know, couple of years, it's been, you know, well over $100 million worth of volume flowing in and out. And, you know, most people still have that value locked in with us since, you know, they plan on holding it for, for quite a long time. But, you know, given the nature of our marketplace, there's people that are trading in out of those positions every single day as well. And that's, you know, millions of dollars of volume that's happening as well. What's the biggest pushback or reason for skepticism that you come across because at the end of the day it's all about data and if we go with you know correlations and price action if we assume that that's that's accurate at least to some degree then you know a true investors should consider any kind of asset class but i've got to assume that there's sort of a consistent narrative around why one should not maybe consider investing in wine talk about some of those pushbacks you've seen and what are the counters to those i think the main pushback is around the time horizon Right. Because this is something that like, in all honesty, like if you're looking to flip it in a year or two, like this is not the right asset class for you. Right. Similar to real estate, though, like you probably want to hold it for at least five years until you can you can be able to kind of see some meaningful appreciation. And we do see that wine returns are definitely like back weighted. So in those sort of later few years, that's when you get most of the price appreciation and acceleration to that. Uh, I'd probably say that's the most common one that we get. But I'd be curious to flip it on to you, Michael. Like, you know, if you wanted to put in some money in the Vinovest today, like, what's what's stopping you from doing that? Yeah, it's it's we all we, we all we all drink our own Kool Aid, 
right? We, we all drink our own stories, right? And when you're an entrepreneur, and you know this yourself, having done it multiple times now, you know, you've got to be fully committed with your capital in terms of what you're, you know, pushing out there as a business, as an approach, as whatever it would be. Outside of that, though, I mean, candidly, I don't, I, I'm with you, right? It's, I would view it no different than any, any other uh, liquid asset. So I wouldn't be bothered by the time horizon aspect to it. I think what you guys do is phenomenal in the way that you have the infrastructure built out. If I didn't know you, I would always be a little bit skeptical of the back end side of it because you're not necessarily seeing or touching it other than, I think, a photo, right? I mean, yes, there are legal claims and in terms of service and all that, I assume, which is, which is, you know, very strong, right? But that, I think, is always sort of a question mark whenever you're dealing with an online marketplace around something that you hope is real, but you actually may not really know if it is. Yeah, that's true, right? Because most people are not really going to see their wines um, until the very, very end, which could be years from when they first sign up. So that's totally, totally a valid point there. We have had a couple of people request to visit our warehouses. So that's, that's really my, my only sort of a, a way to overcome this is like, hey, we will literally shop you into the warehouse and you can come see yourself. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the only way to to do it. And, and Billy, that, that's, that's something that's, that's not a criticism around what you guys do. I mean, you, you can, you've heard those arguments around, for example, even in the, in the ETF space, right? Around, uh, you know, gold ETFs or silver ETFs, if Wait, you're buying the fund, right? And is it really backed by anything? You can't really actually go necessarily that easily to see if everything is matching up to the AUM of the, of the fund with the underlying, you know, precious metal. Totally. I would love to see all the US dollars that are supposedly backing Tether too, right? So it, it's a, it happens in a lot of different asset classes. And that is why I go back to wine is a better store of value. So with that said, uh, everybody that's here, this was a, a fun conversation. Check out vinovest.co. Follow Anthony and everybody. Go enjoy a little wine tonight. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.